Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border and immigration issues. I'm Steve Murens. This week, Deanna and I are joined by a recently retired Canadian immigration lawyer, Joshua Son. Joshua practiced immigration law for over 25 years and is a past president of the Canadian Bar Association's immigration subsection. Uh, Josh worked both as a sole practitioner at a small firm and even at a big four accounting firm, all practicing immigration and some refugee law. We discussed today Joshua's career, what made him go to law school, whether he took immigration courses in law school and whether he thinks it matters if you do, how he started in refugee law, differences he found working as a sole practitioner at a small firm and at a big four accounting firm, differences working in downtown uh, Vancouver versus working in a suburb, and managing the stress of immigration law and running a business and a whole host of other topics. There's a lot of nuggets in here, I think anyway, for aspiring lawyers and current practitioners, and I hope you enjoy. And if you know Josh as well, I think you'll find it especially enjoyable to hear him recollect on his career, which I also think is useful for anyone considering a career in immigration law or currently practicing to hear from someone who did it successfully. If you like the show, Borderlines, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find my contact information at LARLE.com. That's the firm I work at, Larley Rosenberg, or Deanna's law firm, uh, which is the website is mccrealaw.ca, mccraylaw.ca. I hope you enjoy. You know, it's amazing. After I uh, after I stopped working, I started shutting down all of my social media, and it's incredible because I spent so much time following stuff on immigration when I was working, and how much your mind just sort of clears away it, it oh, you know wow. yeah so i just started one one piece of uh social media after another and i i just sort of felt really cleansed <laughs> just, yeah. uh, no my yeah. dirty little secret on twitter people often ask like oh you spend so much time on it but i never i barely browse it because it is like it, you can spend forever just uh, like, I don't know, people who follow, like, more than a couple hundred people on Twitter, how they oh. do it. Um, yeah. Do you miss it now that you're retired? Did you find it, like, a weird year also no, to stop, I, I guess? Yeah, I thought I would. Yeah, in some ways, it was uh, very fortunate. I mean, I stopped just before all of the uh, all of the COVID. But on the other hand, you know, I had thought that uh, I was going to be off traveling, Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm held up and uh, hostage in my own home. But um, no, it's uh, it was really fortuitous in a lot of ways. It's an easy, uh, very easy to exist, not having to worry about files and stuff like that. Uh, you know, several months after I stopped working, I was still having some dreams, you know, thinking waking up, you know, thinking that uh immigration applications applications i was trying to uh, file online whether they had gone through <laughs> i had this dream searching through uh files on the computer to see if i had any kind of proof that i had uh, submitted applications oh, and man. stuff so but that sort of peeled away and it's uh you know even even with today when when i was sort of getting ready to you know have this talk with you guys i started realizing man, my mind is blank on, uh, with respect to, you know, the practice and immigration. And it really, I, it does feel like a long, long time ago in, in some ways. Do so, you find that you're getting a lot of questions from like just general Canadians now about the border closures? I'm not. There was a period of time before I, I deleted my uh, LinkedIn but I was getting contact from old clients who needed to uh, follow up citizenship and things like that from other lawyers who were asking for, for advice. I was still doing some, some informal chats with lawyers on phones about, you know, just strategizing on some of their files and stuff. And it was nice, but I kept, the more I was out of it, the more I felt like I hadn't been keeping on top of any changes. And I started to worry that like, 
you know, I'm saying things based on the last time I had practiced, the last time I had looked at any kind of ministerial, you know, um, notices. And so like, I, now I sort of feel out of it. And I, I figure there's so many changes since COVID. I just don't know what's, oh uh, what's happening anymore. So, it really is a yeah, hamster wheel. You get you get whipped off of it pretty quick, and uh, yeah. you really do need to relearn kind of um, everything. Yeah, but there's so much, you know. I agree. So much you refocus your attention, and a lot of people thought that you know when I was telling them I was going to retire, that a lot of them were saying, "Well, you're going to be bored, or maybe you just need a you know a hiatus and come back," or you know, work part time. You said, time. no, I'm going to be traveling the world. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, actually what it's done is it's given us time. We, we've, you know, we've, we sold our home in Vancouver and we moved. So we're giving us some time to settle in, to start. There's a few repairs that we need to do in our new place and, uh, you know, fix a few things here. So we're getting all of that done before, uh, before we hopefully get a chance to travel. Where so is the new place, Josh? Uh, well, I don't want to say this on on uh, for public oh, consumption. Please but, address, uh, postal no. code, if you could just. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. No, yeah. we're uh, living on. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So it's quite nice, and it's uh, it's the hard part is we're settling into a new community with COVID. We're not. It's harder to go out and meet people socially, so mm-hmm. we're not really connecting as quickly um, with the community, but in terms of being able to get out and do forest walks, beach walks, you know, it's easy to, uh, to go out and not be, uh, be sort of in, in the crowds that we were experiencing in Vancouver. So yeah, yeah. that way life is very easy here. So when did you start practicing immigration? Well, let's I even go before pra- that. What made you, uh, why did you go to law school? Hmm. <laughs> why did I go to law school? Um, I hate to admit this. I I was floundering, uh, not sure what I wanted to do. And law was something I had been considering. I'm not even sure why. I think I, some of my friends were in law. But it was one of those things where my dad basically said, write the LSAT. Um, if you don't know what else you're going to do, give it a try. If you, if you find you don't like it, that's great. You know, you've eliminated something, right? Yeah. And uh, in some ways, I fell into it. I mean, I was... I was interested in, in a lot of the policy stuff and, and law seemed to be a nice extension for that. And, um, you know, it, it did work out really well, but uh, yeah, I don't know. A part of it was, a, 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 I just really was stumbling along. I mean, I did my undergrad in stretched out over seven years because I was traveling and doing some exchange programs and things like that. And really just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But uh, as soon as I got into, uh, I really enjoyed law school and I enjoyed practicing law. So it became uh, sort of uh, very quickly um, the right choice. Did you um, go directly to law school or did you work between? I, well, I, even in my undergrad, I was taking time off to work and I was taking yeah. time off to travel. Um, I did... Uh, before law school, I was really thinking I was going to be doing something either in uh, social work or teaching. I had worked in in group homes with uh, developmentally delayed adults. I had worked in special education classrooms. Um, And uh, even when I started in law school, some of the research I was doing in the summer was with uh, the Canadian Disability uh, Rights Association. I, I was sort of aiming in that sort of direction of, of policy and uh and human rights work or disability rights work um it, it was the extension that sort of got me into more of the refugee and immigration stuff as right. i went forward there was yeah. always the sort of two groups in law school the ones that sort of like went directly like high school undergrad directly to law school and then there were the ones that kind of floated around a bit um that you know, they'd worked a bit, they kind of, they'd sort of like stumbled their way into law school. And I think there was a fairly significant divide I always found at law school between those that had kind of lived a bit and those that had gone straight through. I found a lot of the people who stumped, I was a straight through her, but I was more of a flounderer in law school. And I found that the people who came in 
after having work usually either knew what they wanted more out of law school yeah, or had like sure. some something had bugged them in their life and they had like exactly. a specific thing that they wanted to like go in and change. That's uh, for sure. Yeah. I also thought, I mean, it's a generalization, but the people who had worked previously had done other things, sometimes coming to change their careers altogether, that their approach to the law was interesting because they really applied it in a different way. I found people who went right through often more, a little more on the act, pure academic side of, of you know, reading the law and, and, and uh, how it goes, where you, people who've come from past uh, experiences were already looking to try and apply it in some real life way. Yeah. yeah. That's why I'm sort of surprised that you said that you liked it. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I thought I did find, I found law school was, was quite stimulating and I enjoyed it, but I, I, it had nothing to do with the practice of law. Totally. Like, that's like, I, you know, when I got out to start practicing all the stuff that you, you never learned in law school, you know, I mean, setting up a, a practice, you never learned anything about business. You never learned anything yeah. about marketing law, about human resources, hiring people and uh, training people. It was, there was so much that you didn't learn. And, sure. you know, yeah, it, uh, but that was part of, for me, the practice, that was part of the excitement. It wasn't just the law, but it was almost learning and, you know, how to run a business. Um, I found that really exciting as well. Although probably if I had studied uh, it before learning, I probably wouldn't have made as many mistakes and uh, oh my God, you know, yeah. costly mistakes, but did you take it's funny. Immigration? I have, did you Sorry, take immigration what? like law in law school? I took, um, did I take the immigration law? You know, I don't even think I did, but I did a federal court case with Jim Aldridge, which he'd focused a lot on some uh, immigration stuff. But I don't believe I took the immigration course in law school. Yeah, I never did. Were you at yeah. UBC? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I have an uncle who, um, he was trying to help me make my way through law school because I was so bitterly unhappy when I was there. And he said to me that the people that were very happy in law school tended to be less happy in practice. And <laughs> the ones that were yeah, very happy in law school were bitterly disappointed when they came out. And uh, yeah. it turns for me anyways, that was definitely the case that, uh, you know, the whole kind of like reading cases just for their own sake, um, you know, that's something that you didn't, really do in practice when you had to like get into the business aspect and the client, you know, that that part of it was like, you know, so totally lacking in law school. Yeah. And so if you were interested in law school, then probably what you found missing was going to be there in abundance in practice. So um, yeah. I tend to tell that to sometimes to, to law students that, that uh, you know, that are struggling is that if you're struggling in law school, you might find exactly what you're looking for in practice. It's definitely a whole different set of uh, skills and, uh, you know, that you need to practice that than you do to be a law student, for sure. I had done, when I was at UBC, I did a, a semester in a clinic program where um, we, we basically were uh, like a legal aid clinic, but we were actually doing courses um, sorry, doing uh, cases. And um, that gave us a little bit of contact with clients, a little bit of, of experience managing files. And I, I did that in second year. So you had had sort of the basic introduction of first year courses, and you got a little bit of experience before you went on to your third year. So I, I found that was actually uh, doing the clinical program was, was really helpful in terms of focusing on uh, some of the aspects that you really needed to pick up from, yeah. from the classes. Yeah, you have sure. the same. I think actually probably the best prep that I had for immigration was there was a clinic at U of T called Advocates for Injured Workers, which was people dealing with their WorkSafe uh, tribunal. And it was, you get a letter, you respond to it very quick, you send it off. And then you're pretty much told that in the time it takes them to reply, you might have graduated law school. And that kind <laughs> of prepared me for like immigration law. Oh my uh, goodness. But uh, yeah. Where did you article? For sure. 
I article, well, I articled twice. It was, um, I initially went back to Ontario. I articled with the uh, Ministry of the Attorney General's Equality Rights and Policy Development Division, and uh, which was great. It was really interesting. Um, but then I came back to British Columbia. At the time, you, you had to re-article. Um, so I got called to the bar in Ontario, came back here, and I articled with the BC Public Interest Advocacy Centre. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so um, then I, I started practicing in BC. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know you were at BCPAC. And they were, were you still, they still doing utilities regulation type of litigation stuff then? Well, yes, except one of the reasons I went there at the time, when I interviewed there to go there, um, Gwen Brodsky was doing the quality rights stuff. Oh, and wow. she went off, actually. I think, unfortunately, just as I started, she went off, I think, to Harvard to do her, her doctorate. And Anita Braha came in to do some of the equality rights work. Leslie Stalker came in as a, as, a, as a lawyer. And while she was at PF, because she was bringing some of her own files, I actually was working on some refugee files that she had brought into PF, which was one of the things that got me in. Carolyn McCool was also executive director at the time. So oh my goodness, real... I had no idea that any of these women were at BCPAC. Yeah, well, temporarily, uh, Leslie was. And um, yeah, so it, uh, she was one of the first real refugee lawyers that I had uh, met when I started uh, practicing. And for those who are like uh, Leslie Stalker ended up being, becoming the UNHCR rep. Um, she's a very, very uh, uh, famous uh, refugee practitioner in BC. Um, and Gwen Brodsky uh, did some very important uh, human rights litigation up to the Supreme Court of Canada um, many years back as well, and then ended up forming a, a human rights uh, NGO here in, in British Columbia as well. So uh, they're sort of yeah. like the, the sort of um, foremothers of, of a lot of the human rights uh, movement here in, in this province. Yeah. This kind of, I feel like we've sort of indirectly answered this question, but one of the questions that I received when I said we'd be having a conversation with a recently retired immigration lawyer is whether there's any courses or law schools that are best to help someone start a career in immigration. Mm. And I feel like we've kind of answered that with a no. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if you had, if, if, if there's clinic experience at law school that allows you to do refugee work or immigration work, I think that would be useful. I, in fact, I, when I was at the clinical program, I had one refugee file. The problem with it is, is that you're, you're not going to get very far in it because you know how long these take to proceed. Right. Yeah. So, but having some experience or working, being able to work with a, another lawyer it is helpful in some getting some of that exposure to it. Right. But the yeah, thing is you're, I mean, you're I did, really you're not qualified to do anything, but just even seeing yeah. how a refugee practitioner interacts with a client, it's got to be incredibly informing at that age. Just um, just getting a glimpse of, you know, somebody trying to get out the story of, you know, of what somebody has experienced. I think um, I think I agree with you, Josh, that just that kind of hands-on experience and seeing that kind of client interaction component is something that is sorely missing from the, from the academic work. Even just seeing how like the state interacts with certain people can be a real eye-opening experience. Yeah. Like even what you're saying just about the delays, even just seeing how impactful that is, um, Steve, like um, you know, that, that, that the loss of the human interaction, it's, it's part of the experience for somebody who's going through that type of experience. Yeah. So when I had started practicing, you were kind of in a loose affiliation with Daryl at embarkation. Was that how you'd started or where were you before that? No, I, I started out on my own. Um, <laughs> I started off practicing refugee law. Uh, yeah. After I left PIAC, I opened up my own practice and was doing almost all uh, refugee legal aid work. And just after I started practicing, there was a legal aid lawyer strike. And I had just down in uh, Gastown, I had a, a little office. I was sharing with another lawyer who wasn't an, a refugee lawyer. 
and I paying my bills and the strike all of a sudden happens. And it was just uh, stressful to the nth degree when you, (laughs) you know, when you've got, you know, an office lease, a a five-year photocopier lease, you know, all of this stuff. And I ended up um, then shortly after I sort of was limping along while the, uh, the, the strike was on. I was also doing at the time, some uh, domestic human rights work, uh, human rights uh, discrimination cases. So I had some of those going, uh, but those, when the refugee lawyers were on, were on strike, but those largely were um, legal aid as well. So I ended up um, working at, at, with Zul Suleiman for a while. Um, he had some, uh, some cases on the go that were uh, some federal court cases and some other, other matters. And uh, eventually uh, joined up with, uh, with Daryl. I mean, Daryl and I had uh, worked together for over 18 years. And uh, so that was a, uh, and that with Daryl, quite frankly, the, um, the structure of, of the relationship and the office changed over the years because we had different partners, we had different associates. Um, we were small, we were large. It, it really changed in a number of different ways. So, yeah, no, yeah. we had uh, for just listeners, we interviewed Daryl, um, I think two years ago, three years ago. It's funny because yeah. the people who, um, like, I've, the only comments that I really receive about that interview are Was that the guy who, like, the podcast was about 10 minutes of his drive from Edmonton to Vancouver? So I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, we did talk about that like took up a big chunk of that episode um, uh, yeah. i don't even remember that part <laughs> it uh my, my number one question that i get from from law students um who i speak to people that want to get into the refugee area are mostly attracted by the idea of working in the refugee area and they want to know like is it possible to make a viable practice, like as a refugee lawyer? I, you know, that was, if your refugee practice is primarily legal aid, I mean, I don't know what the circumstances these days are, but you could do it, but it was very difficult. And the reality was that if your practice was almost 100% legal aid, I don't think you could do truly a good job on all your files. The legal aid paid so little per file. Um, and, and there was the frustrations of it. it wasn't just that you weren't getting paid your full hourly rate or for all the hours you worked. You were also putting a lot of administration time into legal aid files. You know, when you needed to get extra funding for an interpreter because your clients aren't speaking English, you're writing back and forth to try and convince legal aid to fund an interpreter for the client. And I found, I mean, there used to be uh, some controversies and you know, some really poorly done reporting on how there were a few refugee lawyers, uh, legal aid lawyers who were billing in the six figures. Um, and, but they were, you know, you had a few sort of real exceptions and I think they were running mills. And I don't think- Some of those have been disbarred or are in the process of being disbarred. Yeah. Right now. Mm-hmm. To, to really yeah. put in the amount of work that is required in a refugee file, especially if your clients are, are not speaking English as their first language and you're doing everything in terms of uh, an interpreter, through an interpreter, um, to spend the time that you need to spend on each file, it's really hard to make it um, viable on purely legal aid. And I, I think the best is where you have a private practice and you perhaps do a certain percentage of pro bono work or a certain percentage of legal aid work, but that your, your practice itself isn't dependent on the legal aid funding. Uh, and I found that was really frustrating. I found that I was, either you're gonna do a really good job on a file or you're not gonna be very profitable. And uh, you know that's where I found that doing the mix um, was better overall for my, for my uh, 
practice, but also for the, I think the, the quality of work I was doing for the refugee files that I did have, that I did maintain. Did you find so, that you yeah, had to I, specialize I, in a certain country in order to not relearn the wheel of country conditions every file? I, I don't know that I ever specialized in a country, but there were periods of time that you go through where you start, and partly it's the nature. I mean, you get some successful cases and your referrals are coming from yeah. people who were your successful clients. So there was often a tendency where I, it would go in waves where, you know, I was dealing with a lot of people from Afghanistan. Um, and even, even within uh, the files, you know, you may have, you know, women from Afghanistan, or I was dealing for a period of time with uh, um, gay men from Iran. You know, it almost seems like, I don't know if it's because of the clients or because the interpreters start to know that you're, you're dealing successfully with certain types. It sort of breeds itself. So yeah, if you start dealing with one um, country or a type of case, it, it does seem to perpetuate itself. But over time, like I would, I would come in and out of different countries, Latin American countries for a period of time, I was dealing with Mexican cases a lot. Um, so never, it was never that I, I stayed on one country, but they certainly handled them in waves uh, as they went in. And while you did that, there's no doubt that if you've got together, um, you know, the package of country materials, um, if, if you knew the basics of a specific country and you had them all ready to go, then you just had to sort of modify them for a particular case, you know, whether it was based on, um, fear of persecution because of uh, domestic violence or homosexuality. Um, and so that definitely helped make it more efficient to do that. But one is you couldn't rely on that all the time. Over years, you know, circumstances would change in different countries. And so it would, uh, it would, you'd find people influx of refugees from different places coming in, but also from an interest point of view, you know, if you got too settled in one country or one issue, if, if all you had to do was tweak your your country profiles a little bit each time, it was less stimulating, you know, in terms of the practice of law. So that, you know, it's always nice to learn about, uh, a you know, the politics of a different country, the, the social environment of a different country. Um, and so having some breadth, uh, in the practice kept it more interesting, but it would make it more difficult. So, yeah, I mean, having some, some niche areas certainly would help make it more efficient. For sure. I think the other thing that's so challenging for lawyers that wish to break into this area is that there's, there's really no such thing, um, at least not in British Columbia, of a place where you can join a firm where there's, 10 refugee lawyers and you're going to be mentored and somebody's going to feed you work or somebody's going to, you know, train you that it does tend to be, and there are small boutiques, but I think that it yeah. does tend to be still that model where, um, you know, there does have to be a bit of entrepreneurial spirit and somebody who wishes to break into the area. And so I just wonder whether or not you have any insight into what you would say to somebody who does wish to from that entrepreneurial perspective, you know, um, what kind of um, bravery and boldness you need to have. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure what the circumstances, I mean, it's been a while since I practiced refugee law because, you know, years ago, my, my practice morphed more into the immigration and work permits and business side. You know, I don't know, it, it would hard to sometimes make a, a go of it on its own. But at the time, like when Daryl and I were working, we had a lot of associate lawyers and, and other um, partners at times come through our practice and was working, people we could mentor, people we could work with as colleagues. But the interesting thing is, as the law firm as a training ground for other lawyers, we had a lot of lawyers who went off and worked for the UNHCR overseas because they'd gotten fed up with the the uh, practice before the board. We had, I mean, a number of our associates uh, that worked with Daryl and myself are, are now board members with the Immigration and Refugee Board mm -hmm. in different divisions. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, 
it's a good place if there is a small boutique firm that's doing immigration. I think it's a great way for um, lawyers to get their their um, teeth into uh, some file work, some getting introducing introducing themselves to how to work with clients and how to work with uh, getting some of the basics of the practice, the marketing. Um, if you can do that, I think it's a great way to start off. But um, if you don't, you can be quite isolated and getting the files in the door can be difficult at first. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the areas that, you know, we've all been very involved with Canadian Bar Association over the years and having that network of, if you're on your own, you know, having a network of lawyers that you can use as a resource, uh, you can reach out to. Um, Vancouver was wonderful in terms of the collegiality of immigration lawyers, getting information, getting uh, assistance, um, being able to strategize with other lawyers and getting ideas, both in terms of the content of file work, but also just in terms of running practice. So I think it's really important that if you are going to strike out on your own, that you really work to to create a network of other lawyers who will act as a resource. So if the mentorship isn't coming within the actual firm where you're you're working, that you can at least have um, at your, you know, at the other end of a phone line or at the email, lawyers that you can draw on, use as a resource. Yeah, the Vancouver Immigration Bar is like incredibly small. Like it's almost, I feel like you can almost name, at least on the lawyer side, everyone in it. Yeah. Um, at least yeah. those who are active in CBA. You know, the other thing that's very different, I think, these days, when I started out, it might have been a bit easier too to start out as a sole practitioner because when at the time, nobody else who was actually practicing immigration law was very limited. At that time, large law firms wouldn't touch immigration. Mm. I was getting a lot of referrals from, from some of the large immigrant, from some of the large business law firms in Vancouver, because if they had a business client that had an immigration issue, they didn't want to touch it. Right. Um, As we went on, you know, you had consultants come in, you had the large law firm started to develop an immigration branch within, them, you know, within themselves. Then you had the uh, big four accounting firm. So it's, it's, it's true, Josh, but they still, they still don't want anything with any complexity. Like, and I think that if there's any admissibility issue, they don't touch um, refugee files. They don't do litigation. I mean, maybe some of the firm, the big firms do some litigation, but I've still found that I still get a huge amount of referrals from the big firms. And so that's really good. um, Yeah, still tons. I would say it's still the majority of my referral sources comes from big firms. I think it's just because. If you do litigation, I mean, Steve's the same way, right? Like if you're prepared, like if, if you don't get intimidated by an admissibility allegation, if you're prepared to litigate, if all of those intricacies, those messiness, if that's something that appeals to you rather than deters you, then um, there's lots of work to be found. Yeah, the um, other firm, the big the firms teams. don't touch that. But going back to what Josh was saying about how an ideal might be to have like sort of a bread and butter practice, and then you can take on pro bono and for sure. Uh, litigation work on the side. I think that although it hasn't materialized to the extent that some thought like big firms starting to do business immigration, I think there was an expectation that it might take away a lot of that bread and butter work. Um, but for whatever reason, yeah, like I've, I've, I've found that with the exception of one or two big firms, most still don't really do immigration. The other thing that I thought about four or five. Sorry, say years that again. Ago, Most of them don't do. No, even business immigration, a lot just don't. Uh, oh, I see. Don't okay. still do. I've, from what I've discussed with people who have left big firms, is that because of the big firms sort of have a one size fits all, most of them model yeah. on billable hour targets, which don't really apply that well to an immigration practice. That's how I got me a new partner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Um, well, that's right. Like again, I don't know if Joshua even knows that Ryan Neely just joined our firm. So. Uh, oh wow! Congratulations. Yeah. That's yeah. Quite, I know. Wow. 
there. Great. So yeah. exactly. So, um, so that's exactly how it works. Right. So, um, so again, I do think that in some ways, I feel like maybe the immigration practice has started to round the corner of like everybody doing what they do best. And so it's like, you know, maybe that's uh, the next sort of the next generation, even we're starting to see kind of grow up out of that. I was wondering, I mean, in, in your experience, maybe different, you know, when I started off practicing solely as an immigration lawyer, there was a lot of work. But I'm wondering if, if someone's starting today, whether it would make more sense to have a, a, at least two areas of complementary areas of practice, whether you're doing business and immigration or employment law and immigration, just sort of uh, to have a little more breadth if, in terms of the type of work that's coming in. Well, for me, I can't imagine trying to keep up another area of practice. Um, I just find immigration so broad. And I've even narrowed my own scope. I'm really not doing any bread and butter immigration anymore. I'm just doing litigation and enforcement now because it's just like even just in that, um, there's just too much. There's too much to know. And I find that like even trying to do both solicitors work and litigation it's just I'm finding it too much and as you said like just going into retirement I can just imagine like not having to think about all the things I'm supposed to know and keep it all in my brain I can just imagine that like ah moment and I look forward (laughs) to it (laughs) although you have an established um like practice and everything like I think for someone just starting out yeah like we had a lawyer leave our firm and start his own firm and he does wills in the states and immigration and a bit of corporate and he was saying like because he started his firm right before uh the covid pandemic hit and i think without this sounds a bit morbid but without the wills in the states practice he would have uh i don't know if the immigration would have sustained him the other thing that i think is different now for people just starting where you're on your own is as a new person starting in immigration without the backing of like people with established practice, you're competing Mm. with the consultants for a lot of it. And there you're getting into competition on price, uh, possible competition with people who can arrange jobs in somewhat unscrupulous ways. And I think that would be, because one of the things that surprised me. I don't think um, they beat us on price, to be honest. Um, I don't think that that's a major selling point. I think there's a segment of the consulting mm -hmm. market that does. I mean, Josh, you were working with Marina in Surrey. And even the Surrey to Vancouver market. I mean, you might be able to confirm if this is accurate or not. But like a very different market in terms of local competition. Mm. There was very few immigration lawyers in Surrey. Uh, there was quite a bit of immigration consultants out there. Um, it, it was a different profile. But, I mean, the other thing is that it's an interesting thing for lawyers starting out. Overhead is, is a key thing to keep an eye out. Oh, my um, God. And yeah. what I found was I was worried when I first went and joined in uh, Surrey about what would do with my my practice because so many of my you know at that point I was dealing with a lot with companies who had HR managers in Vancouver but you know with Skype and email the reality is that most of the time with a lot of the larger clients you're not seeing them in person for on a on a day-to-day basis and most wouldn't know or care where you are as long as you're responding to them as long as you're getting the work done so yeah if you can if you can locate yourself in a way to keep your overhead down I think that's a especially for someone starting out that's a a key factor well I think now too when I think of some of the new firms you have like Will and his firm out in Burnaby Adrian I can't remember the name of her boss or partner out in Coquitlam um like it does seem to be a bit of a push and the new firms that i can think of that are popping up are in the suburbs yeah Yeah. and there are some there are some people out there who like to work with a local um office so there's some benefit in, in in establishing yourself and getting yourself known in a in a business community outside of uh central vancouver as well 
So. Mm-hmm. But I think that what you were talking about in terms of diversifying your own practice, like, I think that this is a really important point that, um, I mean, you're right that I have the luxury of being able to focus just on the litigation and enforcement and stuff now. But I think that in terms of messages to younger practitioners is that, you know, there were times that I did solicitor's work. It's not that I ever loved it, but that like it did definitely pay the bills. And so when we moved, like when we bought our practice, when my partners and I bought our practice from the previous owner, um, um, who's going to be a guest on our show, by the way, in a few more weeks, um, that, you know, we just needed more revenue. And so that's why I did the solicitor's work. Right. And so now um, being able to do so that's something that in terms of like, um, you know, so I think that you do need to be nimble. So I think that a lot of students come out of law school and they're like, well, I just I'm about this principle. I'm going to be a refugee practitioner. It's like, okay, I get it. But, you know, like overhead is real. Like you do need to pay interpreters. You do need to pay um, for rent. You do need to pay for all of these things. And those are not small things. And that is what basically makes your practice sink or swim. But the other part of it is that um, the point that you were making earlier, Josh, about making the file work good um, is you know, we, and, and you mentioned this too, Steve, just about like, you know, when you, we were talking about sort of the mentorship component too, like, you know, I think that um, young lawyers coming out of school or coming through their articles that they think that the number one quality that they need is compassion, but actually the running the business of a law practice is the part that I think most juniors actually find the most challenging. And so that's the part, like, it's not just about finding out who the mentors are, but actually being able to get your head around how to actually coordinate the files, knowing when you've spent too many hours on that file, but also knowing when you're actually approaching emotional burnout and you're actually not doing good work anymore. Like it's all this balancing, you know, like, Um, because you just can't spend a thousand hours on one file um, because like then it's actually like it's it's just not like it's it's not the right equation like you're gonna burn out your firm like you can't do that and and um, and the question too is whether or not like you're actually serving your client well and when do you actually use not just other lawyers as mentors, but like, when do you call in a psychiatrist and be like, I'm trying to be a psychiatrist to this client, as opposed to just being an advocate, because like, I yeah. think that that's another mistake a lot of juniors make, especially with refugee files. Cause like. I agree with you. In fact, we had a associate that was working with us. It was very good. And she was extremely compassionate and she was taking on some very, very diff- emotionally difficult files. And we were seeing, Daryl and I were seeing her not quite disintegrate, but the burden of it after a while was almost, we had to sort of pull her, you know, this is what she wanted to do. This is the type of work she was doing and she was doing it well, but it was really taking a toll. And uh, yeah, you have to watch that too, in terms of the compassion that you want to give. You only have so much, if you're not looking after yourself, emotionally, uh, psychologically, um, you, you're going to have less to give for your, the files and for your clients. And the same thing, if, if, if the burden of running a practice, if the practice isn't being run well, you're going to be so stressed about that that you're not going to be able to yeah. do your best work and, and be, uh, be as compassionate as you want to be uh, for the clients as well. I think the level of stress too is now um, hit the solicitor practice in a unique way because with the rise of applications getting bounced due to like a missing country in the additional family form or uh, the amount of stress that I've seen that put on solicitors. And if you look at like this most recent draw, I don't know if you heard Josh that the number of points you think that for one draw, they lowered the uh, points threshold from like 470 to 75 and then cranked to it. 75. 75. They invited the whole Canadian 27,000 yeah. invitations. People were sleeping single. overnight outside the BLS in Surrey that does police certificates because they didn't have capacity 
to actually do the police certificates for everyone. But so then they raised it back up and they've said that was just a one-off draw. So if you're uploading documents for people in like the 75, 22,000 of those 27,000 people, that's it. Like that's their shot. And if one little document is missing, um, that's their immigration possibly jeopardized. And so the stress that that causes on like yeah. such an attention. They will never get invited again. Yes. Yeah. Something dramatically changes. Yeah. You know, that was another big change over the years in the practice, mm-hmm. because as we, if things went online more, there was a time, you know, if, if a silly mistake was made either on your end or on a lot of times on the part of immigration officers, visa officers, there was, there was a time in practice where you could, you know, pick up a phone or email directly oh to gosh. a manager in a visa office. And, and if, as long as you can point out that, look, you know, we have documentation to show that it was a clear mistake on their end, or you could get something fixed very easily. I mean, you wouldn't even need to necessarily go for judicial review. There were some great visa office managers who were really focused on saying, oh, yeah, if, if we made a mistake, we'll fix it, right? I bet you Dennis is going to want to talk in his podcast about the time when you would go into the office with your client to make your work permit application and they would process it in front of you and then hand it to your client before you walked out of the office. Right. Yeah. Well, but how you practice changes when you, when you're stuck behind uploading everything online and it becomes much more difficult to connect with, managers, immigration managers to fix the silly little mistakes. Those little mistakes then become much bigger because you have to try to fix them. Like you're saying, mm. a file getting bumped because one thing is one country is left out. Um, but I was getting files bumped because, you know, we were being told that there was a missing document that was clearly included with the application. And if you can't get a hold of someone to point that out, you yeah. know, it, it becomes really frustrating. Yeah, I just got yeah. one bounced because the person hadn't included a document. The document was completely irrelevant to the application. Um, and it would have got them points that they didn't need. Like they had something like 1,200 points and they only needed like, so the, the, the missing document would have changed between 700 and 1200 or something like that. So it was completely irrelevant because the cutoff was like 400 or something like that. And so again, but to try and explain to your client when they say, well, can you just write to somebody and say, I don't have an email address. I don't have a phone number. There is no process by which, you know, unless we go to federal court to just explain the like nameless, faceless (laughs) nature of the system is really pretty shocking to um, somebody who's who's in that process that this is really that it's a deliberate decision to take the human interactive element out of the application yeah. process for the sake of efficiency. When I applied um, for a visa to go to Brazil, I had showed up and you apply in person at a, one of the office towers downtown and the person I'd forgot a document and on my own visa application. And the clerk said, you know what, here, put a post-it note on. She's like, I'll sign off that I reviewed this and said it's okay. It shouldn't be an issue. And a week later, it was approved. And I remember when she said that, I was, wait, you can do that? Yeah. Your, your country allows you to, like, just interact with us and make little <laughs> post-it notes and you'll stick by something? Like, huh. Yeah. Going back to yeah, the... There was- a staff person in, in my office a couple of years ago made a spousal application. I think it was to Sweden. And she made the application just by saying, we wish to do a spousal application. And I think two weeks later, there was an interview online. Um, and then I think a week after that, they got notification that it had been approved. Yeah. What, yeah. Going back to, um, and I don't know to what extent you want to talk about this, but one of the uh, things that I had and anticipated somewhat wrongly I think was that the big four accounting firms would really once they shown an inclination to enter immigration would really start to dominate it but that never really happened um, or at least hasn't happened yet at least in Vancouver Um, and I know Josh you worked uh, at a big four for a bit and then didn't work at a big four Um, Like, I think your whole firm joined and left. I don't know if there's any, like, in terms of just not so much what it's like working 
Atabic for firm as an immigration lawyer, although certainly we can talk about that. Um, but just in terms of the market, like, do you see them expanding into the market such that anyone looking to practice immigration law should consider that they might need to apply at a big accounting firm? Or where do you see that trend going? Well, I do think that the, the big four uh, accounting firms, you know, what they're doing largely, I think, is providing immigration uh, to their business clients in, in a limited way in that it's, they're not doing full range immigration work, but often it's the work permits, often it's, you know, if you, if you talk about the solicitor, the cream of the cream, um, you know, solicitor work that they're trying to do, nothing with too much, I think, complication. It's, they're not really set up that way. The danger is that, you know, when they're bidding on for larger clients, the, the amount that they are expecting um, to charge for each immigration file, I think a sole practitioner or even a small firm would find it very hard to compete on a dollar amount because for them, if they've got a major multinational that they're making money on the tax side of it and the business side of it, the immigration they can just offer as an add-on. Um, it's, I don't think they're going to be a fully competitive in all areas of immigration, but I do think that they will capture a certain, certain segment. Uh, and it's a segment for solicitors and new lawyers that are the more easy run-of-the-mill um, kind of files that you can make money off of, right? Because if every one of your files is, is a complicated file and you're a new lawyer starting out, that's, that's really difficult, right? So I, I think that, you know, you have to be aware of them, but I don't think that they're going to take over everything, right? Not everything is pure cookie cutter, right? Yeah. Even if, you know, personally, if somebody was just starting out, I don't think going to one of the big four is a good place as a training ground. You would be exposed to a lot of work very quickly, um, that might be a good way of uh, exposing yourself to different things. But I don't think you're going to get the mentorship. Um, and I think going to a, a smaller firm uh, would actually be a much better way to start out. You, mm -hmm. you have much more opportunity, not just uh, for having files passed on to you, but really to work with other lawyers on files. You know, even... Even after I've been practicing for many years, I found that one of the things I enjoyed most was whether I was working with Daryl, whether I was working with Marina, the idea that you can go into someone else's office and strategize on a, on a file, the fact that you can uh, get somebody else's input. Yeah. I really liked that aspect of practice, of, yeah. uh, of working with colleagues and uh, for me, that's one of the things that made it more enjoyable overall. Yeah. And the other part of it to me is that like, we tend to have face-to-face -face meetings with each applicant. And so it's not just for sure for me going into Mika's office, which I do like a hundred times a day, but also um, speaking to applicants, because for me, that's very fundamental to my style of practice that like that's why I do it because I like to actually speak to the person who's going to be making that application tell them what the application is tell them you know like not just sending right. them a standardized email that I've already written that there's going to like be spat out that they're going to read and then they're going to do it but that like because I, I just I am a visual learner like unless somebody's explained it to me and I can ask questions and I can sort of hear it through I don't know what I'm doing and so that they're going to get this email and then they're going to have to go to the port of entry and they're going to have to do the thing like for me unless somebody's talked to me and I can like understand it wrap my head around it I don't actually know what I'm doing and the whole thing just feels very abstract and they're very yeah. scary like going across the border and having to present a package and then getting interrogated by CBSA. Like I kind of like to know what it is that I'm doing and understand it before yeah. I get questions. And so like, you know, from that, that point to me of is view, a, like boutique experience, you know? Yeah. But, but that actually reminds me of something else, especially when someone's starting out through 
ALA through the CBA, there are often some opportunities to get tours of um, uh. port of entries at the airport, at the land border. And it's amazing it, when you are getting to go down and you see exactly physically where a client has to go to report to make their work permit application or when they're entering Canada for as a student. Yeah. Um, I even we had done at one point a walk through down to the U.S. side at the at land border, you know, where, where people are um, flagpoling. When you see physically how it's done, it makes it a lot more straightforward to describe to a client. You have in your head exactly what the process is. I think exposing yourself to those types of things is really important. Going to the places, going to the offices where you're going to be sending a client to, knowing what they're going to be experiencing. You know, it, it you can sure. make the client much more relaxed because they know when they walk in, is it to their left, to the right, who they're going to see, what kind of issues they might face, right? The kind How of long they should be waiting credibility you get from saying those things to a client, it means more to them than that you've used all the fancy language in their cover letter. Like yeah. you can yeah, tell yeah. them where to go and what it's going to look like. And I would say even more so in litigation, if you can tell them when they have to stand up, when they have to sit down, how much time, what order this questions are going to be in, like giving them the lay of the land, what they're hearing is going to look like and sound like, and when things are going to happen gives people so much more comfort because actually that's the stuff that people stay up at night worrying about. Like, am I going to speak at the wrong time? Am I going to wear the wrong clothes? You know, like, um, you know, so you'd sort of get used to the kinds of things that people want to hear and that make them feel better <laughs> about what process. Yeah. They're going yeah. through. Even just what to wear for a lot of clients. Totally. hundred percent. Huge amount of stress. For sure. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, to me, um, I would really, bristle at being told that I'm spending too much time on that part of their process because to me so much value is added by having those conversations with people so I, have, I know that we're we're one we're running close to the end of our time and I just want to remember to ask Josh about what his thoughts are about volunteerism while you're in oh and I have another question uh, that I okay. specifically told to ask let's do volunteerism okay. first yeah for sure yeah well, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I joined the Canadian Bar Association uh, when I was still a law student, and it was a great network. Um, going to their conferences was a great way to keep on top of immigration matters, but also right from the monthly meetings, and you're, you're meeting other lawyers. It's a great way to, to network. I also, you know, when I was, I was a, a member of the organizing team, uh, the, the board of directors for Vancouver Association for Survivors of Torture. It is when I was practicing refugee law. It, it, first of all, it gets you out of your file work, which is really important to change your, your perspective every once in a while to, to move back. It also gets you involved well, with other lawyers, which is a great resource for yourself, a great way to even share sort of the trials and tribulations, uh, get tips. But also working with organizations like VAST, you're meeting uh, people who, who are helping your clients in other ways, whether they're psychologists sure. or counselors. Interpreters. Your, your yeah. Interpreters. You're, you're finding out resources for your clients. You're understanding from other professionals what your clients are experiencing when they're not in your office, right? Um, it, it was a really great educational experience for myself as a young lawyer too, you know, to hear, you know, when your clients are coming to your office and, and they're not telling you A, B, and C because they're afraid of this. It, exposing yourself beyond your, your practice to the things that are relevant is certainly rewarding um, it adds another another dimension to your practice, which keeps it more interesting. But it also helps you, I think, become a better practitioner by understanding the, the broader needs of your clients. But it was, uh, you know, with the Canadian Bar Association, the other element of it was, as I said early on, I was interested in policy development. And that's where I, I did some research uh, in, in my my. Um, 
article years, but it uh, the CBA allowed me to have that continue through my practice where you're doing consultations with different government departments, you're, you're participating in writing submissions to governments. Um, you know, on my time active with the CBA, there were times both formally and informally where you're consulting with governments. There were times when they were going to switch over to the express entry. We were brought in to ask about options of the points for different things. And are we, you know, the government's asking, are we missing anything on this? Are we missing anything on that? It, it's really enriching to see what is going into decisions um, in, informing the immigration policies and programs. And to be involved in that is going to make you a better lawyer. It's also going to be more stimulating for you than if you're just turning out the same kind of file day after day. Oh, yeah. Um, even like, well, this year, especially, I think the CBA um, has been super involved because from what I understand, they speak with government once a week, once every two weeks. I don't know how often. Me, uh, Danny, you might know with Kyle how often they're on the phone just because like everything is responding. Everyone's responding so quick to COVID and the CBA, uh, you know, is seems to be actively pointing out things on like the website that might be wrong, that need changing, inconsistencies. Um, I get the sense the feds bounce ideas off the CBA. Like it's really taken yeah. on an active role, even just in-person conferences. Um, I don't think I realized how much I appreciated them until you couldn't do them in person. And like I, I just, online conferences, um, just aren't they did a remarkable job the 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 cba online conference though really kind of broke the mold they did an incredible job i thought their their national conference was spectacular yeah so one question that we did get asked to ask is what tips do you have for someone whose co-worker leaves half drunk cups of coffee on their desk and it's straight black coffee, which you don't even understand how they can drink in the first place. Is this from Daryl? No, but <laughs> close enough. Josh knows. Is this Laura? <laughs> I got, no, I'm surprised. It's probably one of my paralegals. Um, uh, I, I got more complaints about leaving half front cups of coffee on my paralegal's desk when I was in their office uh, awesome. talking with them. That's yeah, adorable. but uh, that's the number one. What tips do you have? <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> I had um, I had a bad habit of picking up pens and walking off with them, and oh, I had one of my paralegals, one of my paralegals, actually put her name on her pen so that she could come back into my office and find it on my desk after I had. Uh, so I have it. around my house. That's so funny. I have around my house pens that have my assistant's name on it because she oh, no. that same. And she's like you always take my pen and i'm like sure enough they are at my house and it's confirmed oh, yours. terrible <laughs> the other thing i wanted to add to the story about this like and this is just my my stupid plug about this but in terms of the re the, the wannabe refugee practitioner is the self-care component because what i have found so much over the years is that clients really worry about their advocate. And if they think you are not taking care of yourself, they won't talk to you <laughs> because they're worried about you. And so, yeah. you know, and I think that that's, um, that's a little known um, secret that I found that like the more you are self-caring and that you're taking care of yourself and that you seem strong and well, you get their stories faster. And so, you know, like that thing about being, you know, um, murdered and like oh I'm just going to work all the time and do everything for them you're actually doing yourself a disservice because they'll hold back because they think you're not okay <laughs> and so it's like the little kind of irony of like you know martyring yourself at the door of this like, compassion actually doesn't even service your own practice which is um, kind of hilarious so yeah it's actually not good business. Looking, at, looking after yourself is an important uh, right from the get-go because if it's if you don't start it early, you get into bad habits and it's always harder to break those habits as you go along. Oh my goodness, yeah. Especially in a world where like, we're all like everyone's phones um, are almost extensions of them and you really could be working almost 
especially with our clientele, 24 seven, um, setting yeah. those boundaries is super important. It's vital. Yeah. So it took you about a month to deplug, you said? No, it was so more than that because it, it, it really came off in layers. I mean, it, after the first month, it was it was nice, but I found really after that, even it was the the more I did, the more I I got out of social media, um, break the habit of having to look at your email every day or several wow. times a day. I mean, I'll go now for for a week without really checking my email sometimes. Um, wow, you know. Because there's nothing that's really uh, that that's uh, that crucial that uh, I have to uh, see it immediately. It uh, it takes time to break those habits, but also just to clear your mind. I tell you, one of the things that I uh, enjoy more than anything now, it, when when I was working, there was so much reading to do. I really, for me, it was hard to come home and, and start reading for pleasure, pick up for a novel sure. or something like that. Because I'd just been reading too, so much during the day. And having sort of the space now just to read for pleasure is, and not, not having to rush through anything to read when you want to read, it is lovely, right? Wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's a real, uh, it's a real treat. That's amazing. Well, we miss you, Josh. You are one of the great ones for sure, but it's so nice to- We miss you guys up. too. Yeah. Yeah. Our days yeah, in Ottawa. It's great to see that you guys are, uh, 